listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for spending some of your time with us this hour. So many dumb people doing so many stupid things. Screw-ups. Boondoggles. You, sir, are a moron. Absolute madness. We have an entire hour of people doing dumb things, saying things that are questionable, having to live with the consequences. We're going to talk about Canada's heritage minister and a dumb thing he said. And you, how, sir, are a moron. And how he had to walk that back. We're going to talk about Andrea Horvath, who just had a press conference wrapped up just a short time at Queen's Park, and it was, I don't even know what to make of that. But talk about that. Then there's Peter McKay's communications team. We're going to talk about that. What in the world were they thinking? And then, of course, to begin this hour, the biggest moron of the, I think, so far of 2020. I think we got we got a we got a candidate here. You sir are a moron. This is the gentleman who was escorted from this plane, a WestJet flight from Toronto to Jamaica, that was forced to turn back after the airline claims that a passenger made a quote unfounded claim regarding coronavirus. There is a video circulating. Apparently taken from inside the plane as this young man was taken off. He's wearing a pink hoodie, face mask. He denies that he said it. But the airline says that 243 passengers on board flight 2702 were on their way to the Sangster International Airport in Mo Bay when the flight was disrupted by this unruly guest. So the plane had to come back. WestJet said, out of an abundance of caution, the flight crew followed all protocols. A new flight was scheduled back today to get those people back down there. Peel police have issued a statement saying that there has been a charge. And Catherine McDonald is our crime specialist, is on the line and has been talking with Peel police. Catherine, what do you know about this case? Well, exactly what you said. It was around 2 o'clock yesterday uh, when not just one passenger, but many passengers uh, on board this flight, which was, uh, you know, two hours into its flight down to Jamaica, had to be diverted back to Toronto because this unruly passenger, in the words of WestJet, uh, made a claim that he'd been to China and he had coronavirus. So um, you can only imagine the fear. A number of people have posted on social media. I've read posts, people saying there were children on board and people were afraid and distressing. Instead of being relaxed on the, on, on the way to, to their uh, holiday vacation spot, they would have been quite upset and scared, I'm sure, given what we know about this virus. And uh, so the airline made took these uh, safety protocols, uh, which they do in a case of a suspected infectious disease. They sequestered the man. They give him a mask. And uh, they returned to Toronto. Now, I, I understand from speaking to uh, officers with Peel Police that this man was actually, they didn't go on board the plane, but they let him uh, walk off. And um, when he got off the plane, paramedics were waiting. He was checked out. He did not have the coronavirus. And that is when he was put under arrest uh, for mischief. I'm also told from a source that he also had a breach of a recognizance, which uh, for those of us who cover crime means he's already known to police. Maybe he's done this before, um, allegedly, of course. So, you know, these people who were on the plane, they got off, they'd been on a plane for four hours, they were back home, and they had to wait till this morning to get back on a flight uh, to start their vacation a day late. And people in Jamaica were also stranded coming home. Uh, a lot of those people will be coming home today on the flight that has just arrived in Jamaica with these passengers. 
who spent one day in Toronto waiting for their next flight. So many questions here, and we're going to get into the whole passenger right thing. What if this happened to you? What if you booked a very expensive, all-inclusive vacation and somebody does something like this, allegedly, and then you have to turn around? We're going to get to that in a moment. But, Catherine, I notice it's interesting here. Police have not released a name. Um, can, can you give me any kind of understanding about why they wouldn't release a name in this charge? I'm not sure. I'm going to ask police that. But as you can imagine, there are a lot of angry people uh, who don't think this is funny, uh, who want to, who would probably take it upon themselves to try and reach out to this man. And uh, they don't want anyone to, to do something to this guy. So I'm sure they're trying to protect his identity, given uh, the outrage from fellow passengers, from people who would have been on that flight, who had their vacation, you know, cut in by a day. I'm sure many of them are were going for a week, and now they only have six days left. Catherine McDonald is our Global News crime specialist and is working on this story for us uh, for Global News at 5.30 and at 6, and will be updating us here on Global News Radio throughout the day. Thanks, Catherine. I appreciate it. No problem. Thanks. All right, so if you are one of those people, do you have any recourse, or is that just the luck of the draw? And then... You know, much, much of the report here is that this man was pranking, that perhaps he'd said this as a joke. And again, these are all allegations. And, you know, what kind of latitude do flight attendants and do flight staff have with that kind of thing? Gabor Lukacs is 640's air passenger rights expert and joins me on the line. Hi, Gabor. Good afternoon. So first of all, let's begin with what recourse you have as a passenger. You just that's just it. You just suck that up. I mean, obviously it's it's not the airline's fault. So how are you going to get compensated? There are two aspects of this situation. One, passengers who were flying down to Jamaica, and passengers who were supposed to come back. For passengers who were supposed to come back, there is still a question of whether just liability here because they didn't send their rescue flight. It is possible that the flight can have a situation like this, but the passengers still have to get home. So there are questions to be answered there why they weren't sending down a rescue for, uh, aircraft right away. With respect to people who were supposed to be flying down to Jamaica, uh, if all these are correct, which is yet to be verified, and if this was a really a reasonable uh, decision for them to turn back, uh, then uh, the passenger's recourse is against the person who uh, created such a disturbance. To, to, you know, there are some things that you don't say on a plane or the airport. You don't say a bomb. You don't talk about bombs on an airplane. You don't talk about bombs when you check in. You just don't. You don't talk about chemical weapons. You don't talk about nuclear weapons. And in the current days, you don't necessarily talk about you having a coronavirus because that creates a panic, and if anything else, it, it affects the flight safety. Now, I don't know what, in what context it was said. It would be really great to see the video itself, which I haven't seen, of what actually has been said, what actually has been done. Uh, if it was an overreaction of the crew, which is also a possibility, which you cannot rule out, then Wedgett would be on the hook for this. Because, you know, if, if someone genuinely uh, speaks about coronavirus like I'm concerned about it, and they misunderstand it as, I have coronavirus, then it's the airline's responsibility because they cannot just turn around the flight uh, because they misunderstand someone. Yeah, but Gabor, who, who, who would make that ruling? Who would decide that whether or not you know the, the flight attendants or, or the flight staff, pardon me, had, had overreacted? It would ultimately be a judge. Uh, the, uh, the first question is what will happen with the criminal proceedings against this person. If this person is convicted on a criminal standard, it will quite clearly indicate that the, the flight attendants did the right decision. On the other hand, if this person is acquitted, uh, that's still a criminal standard, but that can give a good indication of the fact 
that perhaps what happened here was a misunderstanding, an overreaction, and then a judge will have to decide ultimately whether Wedgett was acting properly. Just because it is the airline doesn't mean that they are right. It doesn't mean that they are wrong either. And I would very, I would very closely watch the outcome of the criminal proceedings to begin with. So I, I don't think, I haven't seen any evidence showing, you know, what actually happened. We sort of have the aftermath. But so we're taking a bit of a leap here. But, you know, you mentioned about the things that you just don't say at the airport, and I think everybody knows what those are. You know, with coronavirus being so much in the media right now, just sort of everywhere, I, I, could, I could see a situation where everybody's on the flight, they're excited, maybe, maybe this gentleman's had a cocktail or two beforehand, and he leans over to his buddy and he says, you know, careful, I don't cough on you, I give you the coronavirus, buddy, and someone overhears it. Now, is that, I mean, is that grounds to do what happened? No, if, if, if that's all that happened, then it may be grounds to remove the person for being drunk, possibly. Um, although even that is debatable, because just, just because someone who speaks a bit funny after a couple of shots doesn't mean that they are drunk to the point that they are at risk. Uh, I would say it's maybe ground to approach them and say, you know, do you really have symptoms? Do you, do you display something? And, and the question is how they respond to those questions. It, it's, it may be grounds to ask him some questions. Because certainly, if you do have a coronavirus, the airline would be justified in refusing to transport you. That's that's a reasonable uh, decision. Uh, but um, I, I would say that more that doing more than questioning, it depends on what the passenger says. How what the passenger is? Are they continuing the prank? Then, at the very least, they are they are creating a disturbance. If when if it's overheard and then when they approach by the attendant, they say, no, no, it was, I was just joking with my friend, um, then it's a different thing. It's, it's, you know, you do have the right to tell whatever you want to the friend sitting next to you. That's not the same as tell, telling the, the crew, hey, I have a bomb or hey, I'm sick or I have uh, a coronavirus. So they, they, they do have some uh, right to have a private conversation even on a plane. Um, and, and I don't think that, that, you know, that alone would, without further inquiry, would, would be basis for turning back. Uh, I, I, would, I would really like to see what happens in the criminal proceedings. Um, um, and and uh, I, I, would, I, would like to see, I would like to see where that goes. All right, Gabor, appreciate that. Uh, thank you very much. That's Gabor Lukas, who is a 640's air passenger rights expert and interesting there. I mean, you know, you, obviously you know the things that you can't say, but as you heard Gabor say there, just because you're telling a dumb joke to the person next to you, that doesn't mean that the airline has the right to turn things around, that there has to be some kind of, you know, some kind of ongoing threat to everyone that would actually make the flight crew decide, oh, this is... But this is also where we are with this thing, and I've mentioned this before. No jokes. You, sir, are a moron. No jokes about the coronavirus. It ain't funny. Welcome back to our hour of screw-ups, boondoggles, boneheaded moves, and just general mistakes. You, sir, are a moron. Coming up, Peter McKay's communications team. What in the world were they thinking during a recent interview, recent TV interview, where they tried to interrupt a reporter? And then later on in this segment, we're going to talk about a mystifying press conference by Andrea Horvath, the leader of the Ontario NDP, and why, if I was an Ontario Liberal, and if I was an Ontario Liberal leadership candidate, I'd be going, oh boy, 
It's Lemieux 2022. We'll get to that in a moment, but let's begin with the boondoggle in Iowa. What? Iowans. What, you, what is going on with the Iowa caucus? Democratic Party officials are saying that at some point they are going to get those results from the Iowa caucuses. At some point. The results have been delayed because of technical problems, reporting inconsistencies. Here's reporter Jonathan Carl with more. Is positively gleeful about the problems Democrats had in Iowa. The president himself has already tweeted, quote, the Democratic caucus is an unmitigated disaster. Nothing works just like they ran the country. We're going to go to uh, Washington in our next segment with Jackson Prosco. So that is a bit of a screw up. Here's another one. Here's another communications fail. This is conservative leadership hopeful Peter McKay in an interview with a CTV reporter. And the reporter asks him about a recent social media post that the McKay team made and then presses with a follow-up and then listen to what happens with McKay's communications team. A new level of compassion, a new level of, of understanding of perhaps how things could work a little better at a practical level. And I'd also like, and everybody says this, but I would like to see some civility. You say civility. I, I noticed you, there was a video put on Twitter um, talking about Justin Trudeau's yoga expenses. And is that civil, though? I mean, highlighting 800 and some odd dollars in, in, in no. yoga expenses? No, it isn't. And, and uh, that was something that happened that I, I, I'm not proud of. I, I, don't, uh, I don't have the opportunity always to vet every single thing that goes on that social media account. So we're going to do better. And in that, okay. I, I okay, think so we're that you just went um, way over. I'm sorry. At that moment, his team abruptly ended the interview. I, that's that's uh, quite. He said civility. I, I mean, she's just doing her job. She's a journalist. I'm doing my job, guys. That is Peter McKay in an interview broadcast on television last night, in which his communications team attempts to end an interview to talk more about this communications fail. I'm joined by Alex Creston, who is a consultant with Crestview Strategy and formerly worked at Queen's Park and also at Toronto City Hall, often in a communications role with politicians. Hi, Alex. Hey, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Um, this one strikes me as kind of a dumb thing to do if you're in comms, does it not? Yeah, it's, it's definitely unfortunate. I think that this was, it looked like it was shaping up to be a, a pretty positive interview and obviously went down a road that I don't think uh, uh, anybody, either the candidate or his team, would be uh, would be proud of uh, today hearing about it. Yeah, I remember you at Queen's Park standing there often with the recorder. Have you ever stepped in and tried to stop a journalist from asking a question? Yeah, and you know, like this is not that uncommon that you have to step in and uh, end a scrum or end an interview. Um, but it, there's sort of a, it's a delicate uh, uh, needle to be thread where you have to do it in, and usually there's time constraints. Sometimes there's an issue uh, that where you're going off, going off track, but it's, it's never positive uh, if it seems to be abrupt in this way. Usually when this kind of thing happens, it ends up, you know, edited out of the final tape because it, it, the interview is by that point sort of run its course. Right. And I, I will point out, not, not being in the room, and I don't know exactly the context, but you hear the person off camera saying, you know, you, you've gone way over, you've gone way over. And my first thought was when I heard it, 
Well, that's a time issue, probably, but I guess the question is, yeah, fine, if you're going to call time, you don't call it when, you know, the offense is about to score. And that, that is what obviously sort of what, what's difficult here is uh, that the, the, the bigger issue is something that plays out in a lot of campaigns and a lot of relationships between a lot of between politicians and their staff is this balance of the the social media issue of uh of how much the uh candidate is involved in the day-to-day activity of the social media um and in an age where you know people are wanting to see more and more authenticity in their politicians uh it's sort of calling on those politicians to be more involved than maybe they used to be uh in in what gets tweeted out uh and i think that if we can expect uh as a result of this uh, or as a result of, of the, this whole, um, you know, the last few days uh, regarding its social media, uh, I think you'd expect to, to see probably Peter McKay take a, a more active role in his own his own social. Yeah, threat. you might you might want to check what's going out the door. Alex Creston, consultant with Crestview. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you. All right. So that was uh, your dumb move by a communications professional. Now let's get to kind of questionable move moves by politicians and their communications team, perhaps as well. Who is being reasonable in the ongoing labor trouble in the education sector? Who's being reasonable out there? Are you being reasonable? Stephen Lecce, the Minister of Education. Are you being reasonable, sir? Well, we have not had one example from any of the teachers' unions is a move by them from the original ask. They just tabled something to us months ago, half a year ago, and said, take it or leave it. If we don't get our asks, including that $1.5 billion demand, we're going to keep striking. I just think that's not a realistic or productive place to be. So he says he's being reasonable, but let's go then to the English teachers, the English Catholic teachers who are on strike from kindergarten to grade 12. They're out on the bricks. Wait a minute. Are, Are you guys being reasonable? We are reasonable, right? And I think we've been very reasonable throughout every step of this. We understand the difficulty it poses for for the families we serve when we withdraw our services, but we also understand what the impacts will be of the cuts that this government's bringing forward, and we we cannot sit idly by and just let it happen. Oh, okay, great. Everybody's being reasonable, but the kids aren't in school. My grade six, my student, he'll be out two days this week, just like everybody else. It'll be Thursday, province-wide, for elementary teachers. And then Friday for Toronto. It's Halton for uh, high school teachers today. So then Andrea Horvath, the leader of the NDP, holds a press conference today. And she begins with this assumption. Do you agree with this? We all know that students and teachers and families across Ontario have made it pretty clear that uh, they want the Ford cuts to education uh, to end. Uh, They've been pushing back uh, for some time now. They've been pushing back at rallies and uh, during walkouts and strike days. And the public opinion, it's very clear uh, that folks want these cuts to be taken off the table. Folks, is that true? Is that where the sentiment of parents, of people, the general public is? Well, perhaps. But then, this is where things go a little squirrely, I think, for Andrea Horvath, because I think she's just, I don't know, if you just want to get out in front of the media, maybe, just, I don't know, say a few things, maybe get on the news, because then she does this. She calls for the Minister of Education to be canned, or as we call it in this province, fidelied. I think it's time for the Premier to hit the reset button and to have Mr. Lecce step down 
from the position of Minister of Education. We need a new minister to be put in place with a new mandate to get back to the bargaining table with the cuts off the table so that a deal can be struck. That is Andrea Horvath speaking at Queen's Park this morning, calling for Stephen Lecce to be fidelied. What happened to Lecce? Oh, the Premier fidelied him. Just kicked him to another portfolio altogether. So this doesn't make any sense to me. I, there is, in, under no circumstance, is Doug Ford in the midst of this going to can his own minister. That is just not going to happen. And then we go from kind of like, all right, fine, sure, oh, you can make that point if you like, to just plain ridiculous when Andrea Horvath says, well, then also, Doug Ford, you should not be going on your buddy-buddy trip with Vic Fideli south of the border. Now is very, very bad timing, in my opinion, for Mr. Ford to go uh, down to, uh, you know, to the states and, and have meetings with uh, with various leaders there. He should stay here, be the leader that he's supposed to be here, and get this issue resolved when it comes to the, the uh, job actions of the, uh, of the educators and teachers in our province. That is Andrea Horvath speaking at Queen's Park somehow believing that the Premier needs to be here to be on top of that file. I don't know if any of that, any of that gets any traction. And I will just sum up by saying this, that as this continues to go on, I am not seeing the NDP make any strides. They are not scoring any points. And I know it's not a game, but they are not making the points that I think are important, that resonate with people, that make people think, you know what, next time around... I'm with Andrea. I don't hear that. And so if I'm an Ontario liberal looking forward to choosing a new leader on March the 7th, looks like it's going to probably be Stephen Del Duca. Tough to know exactly. He's in the lead. But I think you have hope. Because if the progressive vote next time around says, well, I listen, you know, we just can't vote Doug Ford, I, I don't see Andrea Horvath at this point presenting herself with that kind of press conference to be a credible alternative. Welcome back to the program. Do you enjoy the American politics? Do you, are you interested in what's happening south of the border as we get prepared for an election in the fall? Of course, we've got to figure out who's running against Donald Trump. And if you've been breathlessly watching all the coverage, you've been waiting for those details to come from the Iowa caucuses. Well, this just in now from NBC reporting that the Iowa Democrats will release a majority, quote unquote, majority of the results tonight by 5 p.m. They were supposed to be out at what, like 8.30 p.m. last night? And there has been a complete snafu and the whole thing is in disrepute. The whole Iowa caucuses, the whole procedure now. And guess who is claiming victory? Well, to help us sort through what is happening, I am pleased to welcome back to the program Global Nationals Washington Bureau Chief Jackson Prosco. Hi, Jackson. Alan, good afternoon. So, a majority of results. That's what we're hearing. We're going to have some time later today. That, that could be 51%. That's still a majority. But, yeah, that's what we're hearing at this point. Well, what does that, what does that mean? And what, take us through what happened here. 
So the long and short of it is that there was actually a push to get more transparency surrounding the caucuses, as opposed to just getting this sort of final number of uh, ex-delegates awarded to ex-candidate. Uh, many campaigns, including Bernie Sanders, pushed for the release of the raw voter data behind that. So in other words, you would know that X thousands of people resulted in X delegates for each candidate, and then the campaigns could interpret and spin those results however they wanted. To do that, the Democrats here had to develop a new app because now they are reporting a whole bunch of different kinds of data back to headquarters not just delegate counts and there was some sort of programming error and that app crashed last night as the results were coming in and there were 1600 precincts that had to report and when people picked up the phones and tried to report the info manually well you can imagine what happened when 1600 people tried to phone one phone number so we have no results we here we are a day later Give me a sense, just a little bit of a background of the Iowa caucuses, because it used to be back in the day that New Hampshire was the beginning, uh, but then that sort of over time has shifted and much more emphasis put on, or a lot of emphasis at least, put on these caucuses. And what does all of this mean going forward for this whole process? Yeah, I mean, starting in the late 1970s, people sort of realized that, hey, the person winning Iowa, for the Democrats especially, in a contested year, tends to end up winning the presidency. And so people started putting more and more value on it as sort of a sign of a breakout star in the party, as a chance to build momentum for an upcoming campaign, and a sign that, hey, uh, maybe an unknown name like, say, a young Barack Obama in 2008 can actually pull off success at a national level. And look, it has worked out more times than it hasn't. Uh, so that's why it has become important. But really, it is like a, a very primitive process. It is people in gymnasiums and even living rooms across the state moving from one corner to another to physically signal their support for a candidate by their presence in a group of people who also support that candidate. Uh, Alan, it's so primitive that at the caucus I was at last night, I had to wear a big button that said observer so that I wasn't accidentally counted as being in somebody's camp by virtue of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> Jackson Prosco determines the future course of American history by standing in the wrong spot. <laughs> um, so then what has President Trump said in the wake of all of this? Would it surprise you to know that they're trying to milk this? Because that's what's happening right now. Uh, you know, Republicans are saying everything from, hey, uh, if Democrats can't organize a caucus, how can they run a country? To spinning this as, uh, you know, a conspiracy, perhaps, against Bernie Sanders and his supporters who are doing so well internally in Democratic Party polls right now. But there's nothing to suggest a conspiracy or anything that would delegitimize this. It seems like somebody just messed up. They wrote the wrong programming code for this app that the party depended on. It was a bad idea from the outset. It's that simple. What happens now going forward towards New Hampshire? So at this point, you know, whoever the winner is has lost their chance to really seize the national spotlight and have a big breakout moment. Unfortunately, that's just the reality. These results are going to come out just a few hours before President Trump delivers his State of the Union address. And bam, that news cycle's gone. The candidates have already left the state. They're in New Hampshire already. So they don't get to do a victory lap here in Iowa either. So all that effort, those months of campaigning in diners and donut shops, donut shops, excuse me, is out the window all but for the handful of delegates you get for winning Iowa. And then what are the polls telling us about New Hampshire, which in terms of delegates, the same sort of thing. It's not a lot of delegates, but it is very important in terms of momentum going forward. Yeah, so the polls showed basically a four-way split here in Iowa between Biden, uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, Elizabeth Warren, and Pete Buttigieg. 
in New Hampshire, it looks like a three- or four-way split at the top as well. So really, it's anybody's game right now. That's why there's so much weight being put on this. I think the, the bottom line is it's less about who's winning and who's losing right now, and it's more a story of Democrats are not yet ready to coalesce behind a single candidate. And, and isn't Bloomberg's campaign team just laughing the fact that they really didn't put anything into either of these races? Yeah, and I can tell you, even, uh, you know, some of the more well-known mainstream candidates like Joe Biden were kind of writing off Iowa and New Hampshire before the ballots were cast as well, saying, are we really going to let these two states decide the whole thing? Are they really that important and representative at the end of the day? Jackson Prosco is our Global National Washington Bureau Chief. You were looking good there uh, in Iowa. It looked a little chilly out in the streets doing your live hits. Yeah, I'm getting used to wind chill again. Haven't had that in a while. (laughs) (laughs) All right, thanks, Jackson. Appreciate you being on the program. Thanks, Alan. Welcome back to our cavalcade of whoops. I can't believe I actually said that out loud. Let's take you to Ottawa. The Broadcasting and Telecommunications Legislative Review Panel released its report last week. Nearly 100 recommendations that urged the Liberal government to implement sweeping new changes for the streaming era, including making companies like Netflix, Spotify, and others collect and pay sales tax. That report also wants those foreign companies to pay into a fund supporting the creation of Canadian content. The immediate reaction from the Canadian Chamber of Commerce was, quote, Today's Broadcasting and Telecommunications Legislative Review Panel contained ill-conceived, if not significantly overreaching recommendations that are out of step with G7 approaches to broadcasting and streaming issues, not to mention deeply concerning infringements against the Canadian ideal of freedom of speech. And that freedom of speech angle blew up over the weekend when the Heritage Minister, Stephen Guilbeault, said in an interview when asked about a recommendation that content producers register and get a license, quote, You are talking about a couple of different things here, but as far as the licensing is concerned, if you're a distributor of content in Canada, And obviously, if you're a very small media organization, the requirement probably wouldn't be the same if you're Facebook or Google. There would have to be some proportionality embedded into this, but we would ask that they have a license, yes. That is the quote from the Heritage Minister. We would ask that they have a license, yes. And on Monday, the rookie minister tried to walk that back with this statement. Let me be clear, our government has no intention to impose licensing requirements on news organizations, nor will we try to regulate news content. We are committed to free and independent press, which is essential to our democracy. Our focus will be, and always has been, to ensure that Canadians have access to to diversity of high-quality and credible news sources. We will speak again when we have legislation to present. Thank you. That is the Heritage Minister speaking in Ottawa yesterday. To comment further on this, I am joined in studio by Troy Reeb, who is Executive Vice President, Broadcast Networks at Chorus Entertainment, which is the owner of this radio station. Troy, welcome. Uh, thank you, Alan. 
Does that clear it up for you? Uh, <laughs> um, look, I think it's a. I think it was wise of the heritage minister to come out and say he has no intention to try to license and regulate news organizations because that was a bit of a red herring to what was the overall much larger issue, and that is one of fairness. And uh, look, there's been tons of controversy that has spilled out over the last few days over the notion of licensing and regulating media organizations. This radio station is a licensed and regulated media organization, as are all of the largest news providers in the country, CBC News, CTV News, Global News. Those are the three biggest. They're all licensed and regulated. And in fact, we as Chorus Entertainment, owners of this radio station, face a massive pile of regulations in terms of how much Canadian content we have to produce, how much we have to spend on it, what genres of Canadian content we have to make, and sometimes even what types of producers we have to make it with. None of these regulations and restrictions and burdens are placed on internet competitors like Netflix and Spotify and Disney Plus and all the others that have come in directly through the, uh, through the internet. And therefore, it's putting Canadian companies at a massive disadvantage competitively. And this is what was at the core of the report's recommendations. Now, the report, commissioned by the Liberals, basically said the solution to all of that is to regulate Internet players the same way broadcasters are already regulated. I think we would ask the question, is there not another solution where you could start to deregulate and lessen the number of regulations put on players like us to help level the playing field? I want to play another clip from the minister's press conference where he is asked a question about his statement calling for licenses for distributors of content in Canada. The minister is asked, what does that mean? So what's a content distributor? What, 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 the report, what the report says on that topic is, is regarding those who produce cultural content, and, and it's around the issue of discoverability, which doesn't apply to media outlet, to news, to, to news media outlet. And I know I it can... You it can, made that distinction yourself. You're the one that said we would have asked them to have a license, yes. I'm, I think I was pretty clear. And, and when I've talked about the report, I've always talked about the fact that it was from an independent panel and these were recommendations and that we were looking at, you know, which, which recommendations we might put, put forward as part of, a, uh, of an upcoming bill. That is the Heritage Minister speaking yesterday in Ottawa, where he attempts to sort of walk back what previously was a rather enthusiastic support for the recommendations in this report to say, well, these are not binding. This is nothing that we have actually presented yet as legislation. I'm joined by Troy Reeb, who is Executive Vice President of Broadcast Networks here at Chorus Entertainment. And when you hear his definition of content distributor... You said in your answer that, you know, you pointed out that the streaming services are not facing the same regulatory burden that perhaps this the, the regular or traditional broadcasts like Global, like CTV have. Would this not make you happy then to extend the same, the same coverage to everyone? Well, look, I think our re- reaction to the report overall was, number one, uh, they, they got two things right. They need to do something to level the playing field, and they need to do it fast. Because uh, right now, on any given night, Netflix is the biggest broadcaster in Canada. It's not a Canadian broadcaster. We don't have a closed system anymore where you can, where governments can just regulate and continue to add more burdens onto Canadian broadcasters in order to support a Canadian content system. Not in a world where so much content is available through the internet um, at very competitive price points, and Canadians have shown a taste. Surprising. Uh, 
content that is made simply for the taste of the market sometimes does better than content that was made for cultural purposes in the background. And so what we're saying is there are lots of ways to level a playing field. And not the only, the only way isn't just to put the same obligations that are on broadcasters onto uh, the foreign players, but something must be done to level the playing field. And I think it's then up to Canadians through their elected representatives to say, do you think that's the way to do it is to put all those additional obligations onto the internet broadcasters and internet content providers, or is it to actually allow Canadian companies to become more prope- uh, competitive by reducing the obligations? That, that sounds a lot like an argument for deregulation. Um, look, I think we are big supporters of Canadian content, and um, but we're supporters of Canadian content that suits the tastes of the market. And right now we have uh, highly prescriptive licensing regimes that dictate not only the types of genres of content that we have to make, but that we have to make it with certain types of producers for some of that content and that we can't own that content when it comes to distribution around the world. We're willing to accept some of that, and I think the first and biggest obligation we're willing to accept is that we have to provide fair and balanced local news and communities across the country. We own that proudly. Global News Radio, Global News on Television and Online is all part of that level of community service. But Canadian content as a category is not a moneymaker. And if it was, the government wouldn't need to try to force companies to do it. And, um, and so whether it adds more obligations uh, onto the other players or takes them down on us, the most important thing is that we get a level playing field. Do you agree that the streaming giants should have to collect HST, GST? Absolutely. Do you agree that they should be forced to pay in to the Canadian Content Fund? I think that uh, Canadians in general um, it would say if Canadian companies have to collect tax, then uh, foreign companies operating in the same environment have to collect tax. That's an issue of fundamental fairness. I'd, I can't imagine any would, uh, anyone would argue against that. If there's going to be uh, someone's going to be given a tax holiday, I would hope it would be Canadians before foreign players players in our uh, in our space trying to obligate uh, the internet players to um, uh, create Canadian content is going to be challenging under trade agreements the government has its hands full as it tries to draft legislation to do this and I think our big concern is that given the political environment given all of the opposition that is uh, already forming against the idea of putting obligations onto internet companies like Netflix that the status quo will continue, or even worse, that they'll continue to try to solve this problem by putting even more regulations onto Canadian broadcasters because it's too frustrating and too difficult to try to do it on the internet sector. I'm speaking with Troy Reeb, who is Executive Vice President of Broadcast Networks here at Chorus. And Troy, previously uh, you worked as a journalist at Queen's Park, you worked as a journalist on Parliament Hill and in Washington as well as, as I'm sure other places as well. But in terms of your political coverage, you know that in a hung parliament, in a minority parliament, they, the government must very carefully choose its legislative agenda. In this minority parliament, do you have any confidence that any of these proposals will see their way into legislation? Um, uh, look, I, I think the government, it, it, it's, it's encouraging to hear the minister step back a little bit and uh, say they're going to be thoughtful and uh, to rule out the idea that they're going to try to license news organizations writ large. Uh, as a former journalist and big believer in freedom of speech, that's encouraging. Um, but let's not forget that there is already a very complex and strict licensing regime that is limiting the competitiveness of Canadian players in this space. 
And the worst thing that would happen is that the status quo remains or gets worse, that there's more regulations placed on us and the uh, and our Internet competitors continue to come through uh, writ large. And I was actually very encouraged in the last uh, election campaign, all the parties, conservatives included, were aligned that this issue needed to be tackled. But now as we see the the rubber hitting the road and the easy way that you can start to slam each other with accusations of censorship or government control or overregulation, um, that's where the tough work is going to, uh, going to come in. And I would just, uh, again, appeal to the sense that all the parties had in the last election where every single leader went on the record saying the discrepancy, this asymmetry between the regulation faced by Canadian industry and that faced by foreign competitors needed to be addressed and I think if they all put their heads together, they can come up with something that's reasonable, protects freedom of speech, and encourages Canadian industry over foreign. Troy Reeb, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you, Alan. Well, that's it for us. We've run out of runway in our hour of missteps and boondoggles and reminders not to shout things on airplanes like, you know, I have coronavirus. Don't do that. Just you, don't. Sir, are a moron. You're a moron, sir. <laughs> <laughs> 